everyone, and you're listening to Transnatural Perspectives. I'm your host, Josh Bennett, recording live from Oslo, Norway, and I thank you once again for tuning in as we continue our collective global journey of cultivating perspectives on society and culture across environments and landscapes. And that's right, I'm saying collective because it's you, it's me, and it's all our awesome guests, all in it together, keeping this experience going. We're currently transmitting this broadcast out to at least 37 countries on six continents. That's the count so far. That's a lot of transnational perspective being shared. That's awesome. If you're just joining us for the first time, please remember to subscribe wherever you're listening right now so that you're alerted every time there's a new episode. And I'd also love to get some feedback on the episode, so make sure you follow us on social media and send us your comments between shows. Please share this podcast wherever you can, because really, that's the best way you can support it. Today, we will travel to Australia to speak with James T. Neal, who's an educational psychologist and professor at the University of Canberra. James' expertise and interests lie in outdoor education, adventure therapy, green exercise, experiential education, and some other indoor activities like online education, open education, psychology of social networking, and program evaluation. James is a pioneer in his research with Outward Bound and other adventure therapy programs as they relate to life skills, mental health, and adjustment to health in medical conditions. For those of you who have never heard of Outward Bound program before, Outward Bound is a leading provider of experiential and outdoor education programs for youths and adults around the world. This is an international network of outdoor education organizations that was founded in the United Kingdom by Lawrence Holt and Kurt Hahn back in 1941. Outward Bound helps shape programs like the U.S. Peace Corps and numerous other outdoor adventure programs. Its aim is to foster personal growth and social skills of participants by using challenging expeditions in the outdoors. James also has some pretty incredible adventures, including on the high seas and his efforts to collect data on the Outward Bound programs, a story he's going to share with us during the interview. You may also know James' work if you were ever a user of the Wilderdome Outdoor Education website, one of my favorites and a favorite among teachers looking for last-minute activities to share with their classrooms. I've personally been quite inspired by James' work for many years now, and for that reason, we have a ton to talk about. We discuss a lot in this episode, so please take a look through the timestamps if you want uh, more thorough summary. And we by no means covered the wide spectrum of James's identity as a researcher, but that's a great reason I hope to have him back again. And after listening, I think you will agree too. So that's it, everybody. Enjoy the episode, the conversation, and talk to you on the other side with some reflections. excited about today's guest all the way from i think i got it right canberra australia everybody welcome to the show james neil how are you doing today james i am doing great thank you and pretty well pronounced i gotta say we probably say canberra canberra yeah yeah i i used to have some kind of when i was a kid i was i like to make up stories and i had this 
this whole thing where I was trying to convince people I was the foreign exchange student from Canberra, Australia, but I never, I never, so I always had, I always had a very big interest in Australia. As we were talking before the show, I still haven't managed to get there. I've tried to get there a couple times, although it is one of these places. And I don't know um, if you've ever been to where I'm from, but I'm from uh, Florida originally, South Florida, where we have the Everglades. And I always, when I look at the nature in Australia, I always think, this might be one place in the world that looks quite similar to where I'm from, at least in mm. terms of like wild animals and all these kinds of things. So I don't know. Have you, have you ever been over to Florida or the Everglades before? I have. I've been to the northeast and I've been to like the New England area and a little bit on the west and a tiny bit down into Mexico. But uh, yeah, haven't haven't made it, made it to uh, that corner. Yeah, I always think, I mean, from what you can tell me better because I've never been there before, but when I think about Australia, of course, I think about crocodiles and all these like wild animals out in the bush that you definitely don't see here in Europe so much. Snakes. And- yeah, and I guess that's the nature of an island, isn't it? That uh, things evolve in their own unique direction, whether it's, you know, Galapag- Galapagos Islands or, you know, a large island that's the nature i guess of you know a period of isolation so i mean of course it's not anything like what crocodile dundee you know has you believe (laughs) (laughs) we're a heavily urbanized population and but it's very i mean it's it's a massive country with remarkably few people i think we we're something like 0.3 percent of the world population like it's it's minuscule in terms of people and yet the landmass is you know surprisingly large and yet we all concentrate together by and large and and live you know sydney and melbourne have population densities that are equivalent to many of the the large cities in the world yeah and of course it's from what i understand the middle i mean most people of course live by the coastline and then the middle is kind of a lot of desert and whatnot kind of barren yeah um, and that yeah, and it depends how far you sort of zoom in or zoom out. So zoom out, yes, it looks barren, and mm. and yet you know Indigenous people have lived there and thrived for there for you know as long as any you know they are probably the oldest continuing you know Indigenous population, and they covered the whole country and you know worked out how to live in that environment. So you spend time in that environment, and you know you see it remarkably, uh, remarkably differently. Yeah, you know, that, that's, a, that's a very good point, too. Of course, from the very, very far outsider, never been there, just looking at it on a map perspective, very probably colonial mindset, too. We would say, oh, it looks very barren there. But of course, <laughs> there's a lot going on there. People mm. have been living there forever. Just to start off, to kind of introduce introduce yourself and also why why we're joining together here on the podcast today. I first came acquainted with you quite a long time ago, I'd say probably back in, I don't know, 2012, when I was doing a lot of research for my outdoor studies. I was I was studying in a program called Transcultural European Outdoor Studies. So very broad study and, and researching a lot of, you know, interdisciplinary kind of outdoor studies, researching a lot of things, everything from psychology to anthropology and how it all kind of connects through the outdoor. So I first came across your writings and research through my studies. And I mean, I noticed that, you know, you go by many different 
topics that you're circulating around, like outdoor education, adventure therapy, green exercise, and then some well, some things that are a bit broader, more into psychology, like program evaluation and cross-cultural adaptation. All of these words I'm just kind of pulling out of the ether that I'm connecting with your work that I've read. Is it safe to say you are an eco-psychologist? Yeah, look, I, um, I, I probably struggle for a single identity and um sure you know I, I prob- i'm a bit eclectic in in, mm-hmm. in that way but i'm actually a bit of a fan of the sort of multiple identity you know literature this you know there's this narrative that you need to be a sort of a single personality or a single identity and i actually think there's that's not necessarily healthy mm-hmm. i think multiple identity has a sort of bad name from psychopathology because, you know, there are disorders which uh, are dysfunctional. But I actually suspect that at the other end of the spectrum, the healthiest psychological profile is one that can, you know, embrace multiple identities. And we all we all have them. You know, we behave differently at home with our family from how we behave at work or how we behave, you know, in other contexts. So, yeah, I mean, I my first sort of, you know, serious job was an outdoor education instructor with Outward Bound Australia. And, you know, when I was when I was an adolescent and you go through that sort of identity search and I thought that I probably wanted to go trekking in Nepal and go and go up a mountain and find, you know, a guru on the mountain who would, you know, I could sit with and, you know, have the world kind of within and without kind of re- revealed. And I was always interested in psychology, but, and what made people tick, and in particular, how people could be made to, to tick better. But I love sport and I love, you know, rambling around and, you know, doing things with my body. So when I went to, eventually went to uni, there was no such thing as outdoor education or all the sort of even that the course that you said you did, you know, it sounds fascinating. I, you know, I would have loved to have done that. I did psychology and then I said, well, can I do philosophy? Because I thought, okay, well, maybe they're two things that would get close to what I want. And they kind of said, no, those two things don't go together. And that was the attitude then. I mean, it's completely different now where you make up your own degree basically so the closest I could get was to do psychology and sport, and that's what I did. But before that, I, I had gone to an information evening by Outward Bound Australia, and they gave a talk, and they showed me a video, and I thought, ah, that that's it, like, because it was the outdoor adventure packaged with the personal development, which was, you know, the perfect combination of what I was looking for. And I went home and uh, told my dad about this and that's what I wanted to do and would he cough up the money? And he said, no. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, like I hated him for it, absolutely hated him for it. But he said, go out and earn the money yourself. And uh, I probably owe him, I don't know if I've had the conversation with him, I probably owe him the conversation to say, well, I didn't like it at the time and I resented it, but thank you because it did send me out on my own two feet and I because I grew up in Perth on the west I came over to the east and picked fruit for three months and mm-hmm. you know earned enough money to buy a pair of boots and a rain jacket and to pay for an outward bound course and you know that was sort of the beginning I guess of that that part of the journey and these days 
I don't know why. I had a great time picking fruit because it was outdoors. It was natural. I, you know, I'd, I'd catch a lift into town and go and you know get books from the library about how they graft you know fruit on the things and and it was all walks of people somebody warned me that you know if you go fruit picking you'll meet three types of people you'll meet criminals which was true you'll meet overseas people which was true and what was the third category i don't know it might have just been drifters or something like that mm-hmm. and it was a wild place you know i was i was pretty frightened at times but you know it was just awesome to be I don't know. For me, I felt like my life had started, you know, because it was it, things, adventure was happening, you know, and that was the fit, as fit as I've ever been running up and down ladders all day. I actually mm-hmm. loved the payment system because it was it was what they call piecemeal. You, you get paid for what you pick. So if you want to sit around and drink cases of beer all day and pick a couple of apples and get paid a few cents, you can do that. And if you want to work 12 hours a day flat out and, um, you know, you can earn reasonable money. And it was sort of like, in some ways, it was an ideal sort of utopia because (laughs) you could do what you wanted and you got rewarded for it if you wanted to work hard. And if you wanted to party, then you partied. So, yeah, that was – and in many ways, that was just as important in my development as, you know, subsequently then – doing an outward bound course and then, you know, starting to work as a outward bound instructor. And I was studying psychology along the way. And I think I went, I used to ride my bike to uni every day and every holidays I would basically jump on the bus and I would come back to the East, which is like a two day bus trip and work and then bus back for the first day of classes. And, but I th- in my last year of uni, I went to hand in my last assignment. Instead of riding my bike that day, I must have been in a hurry. I jumped in the car and had a car accident. It wasn't a major one. Somebody ran into the back of me, but it was enough to give me whiplash. And so I couldn't really easily put a backpack on. And I let Outward Bound know that I probably wasn't in the best shape for going bush. And they said, well, you've just finished your psychology degree. How about you come over and you can get involved in the research department, which, you know, was when I say department, (laughs) that was an executive director who himself had a real passion, Gary Richards, for outdoor education, personal development, but combining sort of research. And for him, that was integral to program development and staff development and development of participants. So I was, I was very fortunate then to sort of, I guess, get on the other side. I think I had the previous year written him a somewhat cheeky, naive, upstart letter about, you know, how there was a lack of evidence about these things working and why weren't people investigating it and blah, 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 which was probably, if I look back, highly embarrassing. But I think that also sort of put a bit of a seed in his brain that I was curious to, you know, probe a bit deeper into what was going on. I didn't mean to try to pigeonhole you either into like (laughs) one thing. I don't like to, I don't like to label people, but it sounds to me like it is, yeah, very healthy to kind of like embrace all of these different kinds of avenues in like an interdisciplinary way. And it sounds like you just kind of like naturally evolved into that without, you know, saying, oh, I'm going to go to school and be an eco-psychologist or I'm going to go be a psychologist or I'm going to study all these different kinds of things. It sounds like, you know, kind of your, your father saying, all right, you know, you want to do that, go out and get a job. And that puts you, what it sounds like to me on this very, yeah, you, you, it, get, it got you motivated you know, in a very natural way. And doing these very natural and kind of physical things 
like picking fruit, like riding your bike all over the place to like save money and then going off and being an out, outward bound instructor and at the same time kind of balancing that out with the studies. And it sounded like it all just kind of melted together into this this thing that you do now. When when was that when you had this accident and then like what year was it? I'm just trying to I'm just trying to gauge like what time period we're in. Yeah, like so I was born nineteen seventy. So, mm-hmm. you know, this would now be nineteen nine early nineteen nineties. Yeah, late eighties, early nineteen nineties. And I so I when I was over there I then did a honors degree. I then started a PhD while I was working at Outward Bound. And one of my sort of first sort of real frustrations was getting hold of information. It was out there, like it existed, but, you know, this is pre-internet and, you know, it's, it's difficult to sort of, for those of, you know, now that we've grown up in the internet, to actually sort of transport your mind back to what it's like. And I, in a way, I sort of imagine that the internet should exist because that was my sort of attitude that there should be this sharing, there should be availability. Mm-hmm. But most of the stuff that we were looking for, say, you know, in those days, Outward Bound was kind of, you know, you know it was sort of one of the first big organisations and, you know, arguably it's sort of still the only real in- genuine international sort of network of outdoor education schools so they had these little hot houses of you know development and but very little was published and a lot of it was just sitting in filing cabinets in various schools so i think in the early 90s let's see it was the anniversary of columbus's arrival in america and there was some recreation what would that have been 500th anniversary and yeah 1492 columbus sailed okay. the ocean blue yeah there you go perfect so 1992 so 1992 a whole lot of tall ships sailed from europe to uh, the us and some australian boats joined in for them it's a longer journey so it became a sort of year-long exercise circumnavigation and the last leg was actually would have been the second last leg was Europe to the east coast of the US and then there was a final leg from west coast of US back to Australia and they divided it up into sort of four three-month segments and I was kind of by then looking for another sort of outward bound experience you know I'd I'd, um, wanted you know it had been great and so I ended up sort of getting a place on, you know, youth crew coming back from the US. So I thought, okay, I'll go over to the US and visit some Outward Bound schools, try and extract their research from them. And yeah, look, I had a I had a great time. I went to Thompson Island, Outward Bound School. I spent a month, I, I thought I may as well go to the schools that seem most different from what I was experiencing it was so I figured there was not much point in going to I don't know California Outward Bound School because they sort of did expedition things like what we did so New York at that time was like wow that's really different kind of idea to do urban urban programs how does this work so I and I had a great month there and learnt huge huge amount Uh, and then I went to the Outward Bound USA kind of centre up in New England and basically sat there on the photocopier for days photocopying all their stuff and had boxes of things <laughs> that I, you know, dragged 
down to Mexico and then dragged onto the yacht that we were on and then it sailed, you know, across uh, the ocean back to uh, Sydney three months later for our Australia Day. So that was all time that, you know, we would also come in on Australia Day, which kind of celebrates the Captain Cook, you know, arrival in in Australia. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the beginning, basically, of for me of the internet because I had this stuff here and I wanted to kind of share it. And so then when the internet sort of popped up in the late 90s, I was, you know, basically just, putting as much info up there because I thought for anyone else like me who's been frustrated with trying to get a comprehensive look at, in that case, I was studying, you know, what do we know about outward bound programs, then I just wanted it to be shared and available. And that was the birth of the the Wilderdom website, which is now a kind of smoking, wrecking ruin, but it was my sort of brain dump and, and way of networking with the, you know, other people interested in similar ideas, yeah, which has been awesome. Yeah. Okay. So, wow. This is. I'm gonna. I'm gonna back up through this for a minute because this is a pretty incredible story. A few things. Like, wow. So, to me, it sounds like yeah. When you kind of got this idea to kind of start researching outward bound and like pulling everything together, there you're saying there wasn't much research about these programs beforehand. So, how how were they? You know, nowadays, everything is based on research and they want to see the research to get funding. They want to see the research to make this policy. How how were they like designing these outdoor word bound programs before that? What was that based upon? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's based on ideas, I guess, and experience. And, you know, research is not the province of, you know, PhD academics or professors or whatever. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. does research. It's just a question of how formalized it is and I guess how sort of rigorous it is. And mm-hmm. it, I mean, what I loved about the early stuff that at least we were doing at Outward Bound Australia was that it wasn't driven by f- sort of funding and it wasn't driven by anything other than a passion to sort of provide the best possible programs and to continue to try and evolve program methodology because, you know, as Gary had said to me, you know, if we're going to put this much time and effort and, you know, uh, people worked hard in those, I mean, they still work hard in the outdoors, don't get me wrong, but in those sort of pioneering days, you know, getting paid Mm -hmm. next to nothing, you know, working seven days a week, you know, no holidays, blah, blah, blah. If we're going to work this hard, then he wanted to be kind of assured that it was actually having any effect because if it wasn't, then we should be doing something different. But like <laughs> like one of the experiments I remember was, you know, we hooked up with a doctor from the hospital who himself was a former Outward Bound instructor and we were interested in sort of stress and, you know, how it changed over the month-long program because an outward bound program includes periods of high intensity but it also includes you know three days of solo for example and you know stress is this double-edged sword that and that's a sort of curtain metaphor that it you know outward bound sort of cuts and heals at the same time and it's a bit like risk it's you know you're kind of playing with fire a little bit when you intentionally set out to challenge someone because you can go too far physically, psychologically. At the same time, you cannot go far enough. 
And so th- there was a desire to sort of learn a bit more about that, I guess, you know, optimal stress point. Anyway, this guy, James Van Gelder, came out and said, okay, well, if, if you want some data about this, you've got all your questionnaires and whatever, but you probably should get some physiological data as well. And at the time, the way to do that seemed to be through urine samples because you can detect cortisol in, in the urine samples. So just because it was logistically easier, it was decided to do it with males rather than uh, females. So for this month-long course, the males were all issued with a, must have been like a, I don't know, four-litre bottle, plastic bottle that you would hang off the back of your backpack. Uh, but everything had to go into that bottle. And at the bottom of the bottle, there was some sort of acid because it needed, I don't know why, it needed to be, you know, neutralised or stored in some way. So there were splashback issues that a few people complained about. And then there were, it became, males can become a bit competitive. So it also became a challenge to see, could you fill up your four litre bottle in your uh, 24 (laughs) hours? (laughs) And then we'd get to a sort of a checkpoint and we'd hand our bottles over and James or some someone would be there with he had to have a freezer ready to pipette the water to, to pipette the urine in solar powered kind of freezer and he would take those samples off to the hospital and, and gather the data that way and then it was later that I actually learnt data analysis from you know James in some ways because I he's, you know he'd work all day in the in the hospital and then he then he said look come in because I was meant to be doing research and I'd find my way into the basement of this hospital and he'd be there and he he was (laughs) I just sort of sat there and watched what seemed to me at the time like this wizard kind of in those days it's not windows based you know analysis it's somebody typing in you know code to to analyze data and so on Uh, and I just sat there with my sort of jaw on the floor that somebody could just have that kind of skill level to manipulate um, data and extract you know patterns and things like that which Mm -hmm. I found you know quite quite inspiring so yeah, it was a bit of sort of, you know, you, there's things you, just like you can't get away with it in outdoor education now, ethically that you can't get away with. You need ethics proposals for all your research and that sort of stuff. And But some of the adventure, a bit like some of the classic psychology experiments, could n- not in a million years be acceptable these days. We were allowed to sort of gather whatever kind of data we liked at the time. And basically every participant that went through the programs for, I don't know, over a 10-year period got kind of poked and prodded and analysed, only some of which, you know, was ever sort of led to, you know, formalised publications. But it was all being kind of churned back into the program and the program development. Wow. So it sounds to me like, it sounds to me like, you know, as you said, you know, before this kind of research that you were doing began, of course, there was different types of research going on that kind of built up these outward bound programs. But I mean, to me, it sounds like in a way you kind of pioneer in in this field because i mean i i'm I'm amazed by your story that that you went on these tall ships and like literally went out and collected all of this like raw materials all these surveys and information from all these outward bound courses around the world and then you kind of brought that back and mixed it with your psychology background and i think this is important too for uh, a lot of people to consider because I, I was always very curious how you got into this, just reading your work. And I think like 
a lot of people, when they hear outdoor studies, like when I tell somebody, okay, I studied outdoor studies, they say, okay, what is that? And for me, all of this, I mean, I don't know, for me, in reality, everything is connected to the outdoors. We are all connected to the environment, the ecology, all this kind of stuff. So it's more about like what you bring into that venue. And in this case, you had this like specific set of interests and, and skills and so that's that's pretty wild. And I mean, how how is your research playing a role, you know, nowadays in these outward bound programs? Yeah, look, I mean, just like programs have, you know, blossomed and flowered and diversified and, you know, like it's a good thing that outward bound is just really a, a speck in the ocean of outdoor type programs now because mm. it's and it was of course it wasn't the only thing there's scouts and there's you know other sorts of program people are always doing interesting things mm. and i i mean when i go to conferences i'm still amazed at that i swear there is there are no two programs that are the same and i think it's amazing and fascinating and and great i mean it's kind of challenging because when people you know ask for some sort of evidence or whatever the research on one program may have zero relationship to another program the the, a picture might look similar but the actual process of the program is you know radically different and i think it's awesome that you know there's so many kind of live experiments going on and in the in the field so I think research is the same. Like there's so many people doing, you know, so many different little things and I find it all, you know, all fascinating to be. And yeah, the diversity of perspectives is just kind of fascinating. Did you did you find when you were doing these cortisol tests, did you find a certain sweet spot for stress? Well, I mean, like nothing's ever that simple, of course, yeah. but you know, one of the things that I remember is that when, you know, heart rate monitors got put on people going up into high ropes courses and there was starting to be a bit of concern at the time that, you know, there was put an older person up there, there was the odd heart attack, you know, on a on a ropes course or something like that. You know, what's what's going on here? And, you know, it turns out in that case that heart rates at peak Say if you're at the top of a zip line or flying fox, we call it in, in Australia, it's before you leave that the heart rate peaks. So that's actually physiologically the most dangerous moment, not actually, you know, zipping down. Uh, so the same would go for a rappel or abseil that, uh, which sort of fits with our experience. Like if you're talking someone down, down a rappel, generally speaking, in fact, this was the very first thing I ever published and it was sort of a pilot study for my honours study was we, there were some experiments that have been done with parachuting where, you know, just before somebody jumped out of the plane with their parachute, they would fill out on a pretty simple visual kind of scale, how kind of stressed do you feel? And a couple of other questions, fold it up, pop it in their pocket, jump out of the plane, land on the ground, pull it back out of their pocket and, you know, mark these couple of questions again on how they felt at the bottom. And you, you could then look at the you know, you're getting some insight, I guess, into the change or the process that occurs from the, the beginning to end of, of a um, challenge like that. And so in that little pilot study, for my very first research study, we just drew a picture, a visual picture of the cliff and had a couple of simple questions, which included mark on here where you found the cliff most 
the um, abseil most difficult. Mark the point where you found that it suddenly became a lot easy, a lot easier for you, you know, that sort of breakthrough moment, as well as sort of how stressed were you or how confident were you at the start and then at the bottom, how confident, you know, were you or, or you know, a couple of things like that. And what that allowed us to do was just sort of draw a um, – graph of people's experience and of course there's individual differences it's not the same for everyone but there is enough of a pattern there to kind of go that what I found from that was the most stressful point for most people is actually just over the edge which also turns out to be just the point if you're top belaying at which you lose sight of the person that you're talking down and Mm. because visual contact is so important that especially inexperienced instructors had this tendency that once they saw them disappear over the edge, they sort of tuned off and turned around and started chatting to other people. And yet participants are saying, this is actually the moment because that's actually when you're going from, you know, somewhat vertical to fully horizontal and having to fully rely on the, you know, rope and, and not just your, um, your feet, that that's actually the critical point that people, you know, are psychologically freaking out. And therefore, it's actually the most critical point to still be available to them. So, like, that's just, for me, that's just a simple example of where some data actually then can change the way you sort of train your instructors and or the, you know, and the way you interact and facilitate with, with participants. And I think that's just the basic principle for me is, you, you know, we've got our intuitions and we've got our own ideas and that's all, you know, good and great. But when it involves other people and ethical responsibility and wanting to provide, you know, the best possible experience, then why wouldn't you be just as interested to get just as much information about what's actually going on for people psychologically and, and physically that in, in these experiences that you take them through? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm really glad that, you know, you and other people are actually getting a lot of like hard psychological data. This begs the question, why are people doing things like this anyways? Like abseiling, you know, why are people attracted to these super activities? Why, why do people, you know, want to... I just have so many questions about this. And it all kind of roots back to how I originally found out about you, which is through this, this idea of the intra-Indigenous consciousness that I've seen you uh, mention before. Where did that idea come from? And can you like explain it to us a little bit in your own words, the intra-Indigenous consciousness? Yeah, look, it's, it's not my term, but... Where did, it, where did this term come from? Because I've had a really hard time yeah. finding more information on this. Yeah. Look, so I learned about this idea from a fellow named Graham Ellis Smith, who okay. grew up in... or he, he was older than me, grew up in Perth, and he became a park ranger in mm. th- that area. But he, he he was a bit bored or and he wasn't sort of challenged enough. So he said to them, look, can you please send me to the most remote, faraway national park? I don't want to be around, you know, the, the, those Near the, even anywhere near the city, so which was a bit unusual because most people are wanting to go in the other direction, and so they sent him off into northwestern Australia, and he got to know indigenous people up there, and and they basically accepted him into their 
community and he went through some of their rituals and, you know, he was fully accepted and trusted by them. And so the concept comes from, you know, that community through their conversations with Graham and they actually asked him, they said, look, eventually go away because we actually want you to start talking to other people about, you know, Mm. what's going on. And, And one of their messages to him was, you know, get over this idea that, you know, we're Indigenous and you're not, everybody's Indigenous. (laughs) Like everybody Mm. came from somewhere. The issue is that for, you know, those of us who come from, you know, colonial kind of histories, we're several generations distanced from, you know, where where our ancestors came from and we've lost, you know, connection with that. So we you know, my heritage is Indigenous to, you know, Ireland, you know, UK area. And so Graham started running a few workshops and he came over to the East and I went to one of his workshops, must have been, must have been 2004 or something like that, 2003. And he used a, a combination, I guess, of, and it probably was an e- you probably call it now eco-psychology because it wasn't wild and adventurous. It was actually quite slow and methodical. And really, he just took us through a series of Indigenous kind of exercises. It was a combination of Australian but also North American things and things like sort of identifying your totem, which was a North American thing, and really tuning into plants like just spending time holding our hands over the plants and trying to feel the energy you know coming from plants and really the message of that was go and rediscover your own indigeneity and probably to do that experientially that was what I took from it like you know here's some techniques and yeah they they, they they can be interesting but ultimately you know the story of indigeneity is sort of stored within our genetics and it is there. And when you say, well, why, do, why are people, you know, why, why are properties on the coast overlooking the ocean more expensive than properties that aren't? Like, you know, there's a whole lot of reasons they shouldn't be, right? You know, it's windier, it's saltier, it's riskier, it's all of this, and yet they're the highest priced properties because there's some, you know, people like it. People like walking on the beach. People like, you know, looking out at the ocean. So, you know, this probably the closer thing that you would have come across is, you know, the biophilia hypothesis, the idea that we are naturally attracted to nature and nature-like fe- features because, you know, we, that, that's, that was where we evolved and effectively where, you know, animals that have been domesticated and we live in, you know, urban zoos, so we feel, you know, slightly uncomfortable and even if that's not uncon even if that's not conscious it it is sort of working away unconsciously so yeah i guess that's and so you mentioned the green exercise stuff for example which mm-hmm. is really you know nothing more than saying we know that physical activity is good for people physically and mentally uh we know because there's studies like you know the original cat plan window in the hospital studies which showed that you know patients who had a window looking out onto something natural would recover faster and spend less time in hospital than those looking at a blank wall or looking at an abstract painting and you know that was probably the first psychological study that 
clearly demonstrated that there's some intrinsic value to, in that case, just passively looking at nature. And then if you go, well, let's actually sort of be in, you know, fully in nature, or if you go further and say, let's do activities in nature, then, you know, you, you can get even more benefits. So green exercise is really just saying, well, if we know physical exercise is beneficial, if we know that being in nature is beneficial, if we do physical exercise in nature, do we get, you know, even more bang for our buck, which, you know, seem, seems to be the case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm a 100% huge fan and promoter of getting outside as much as possible. And I don't know, never been a fan of the gym so mm, much. Mm. Uh, more because of the environment than, you know, it's interesting. It's It feels good to go to the gym. Like you do get some benefit out of that. And I don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever looked into this, but I mean, it, the the ultimate thing that ever, you know, inspired me to start digging deeper into the outdoors is just that feeling that you get when you're outside, when you get the fresh air, when you're moving your body, you know, and in your around, you know, the green things and the dirt and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, that just inspires to go deeper into these things where a gym just, I don't know. I, I feel like stuff like this creates a lot of, Benefit for some people, but, you know, a large part of the population, especially people that like go to, you know, get a gym membership during the holidays or something, never end up using it. I don't know the statistic, but I know most people don't end up using those gift certificates to the gym or they use it for like a month and then never go out. But but it seems to me with like green exercise, you know, there's so many things you can do. You just got to find something that you enjoy doing and it's going to bring a lot of benefit for you. And it doesn't cost any money usually and can be very low impact and don't need a lot of equipment if you choose to do something that's very kind of like low-key outdoor activity. Yeah, yeah, spot on. And I think, you know, as I sort of moved through my outdoor education career and, you know, came out of it and looking more back on it, one of the reflections is, look, a month long or a week long or whatever, some sort of, you know, multi-day experience is probably great. And there's a huge number of people that are very, very, very convinced that the longer the better. And that used to be one of the most common email questions I would get is, can you send me evidence to show that longer is better? And when we did the meta-analysis in 1997, which like all of the, almost all of these projects, other people's initiative, I just, you know, happened to have you know, gone along for the ride. And that was a fellow named John Hattie, who's one of the top educational psychologists in the world. He, his wife had done a um, master's and she was looking at, hmm, I think it was like physically based sort of intervention programs in schools or something like that. And they had included some outdoor education data and it had popped up on their sort of radar that, wow, this there's some pretty impressive results coming from these programs. And he then got in touch with us at the Outward Bound School and said, hey, you know, you got more research there. Can we come and have a look? You know, blah, blah, blah. And he came down for a couple of days. And a bit like this story with James Van Gelder, I I then sort of watched this guy because a meta-analysis is not one study. It's pulling together tens, hundreds, thousands of studies and re-processing them to try and find the, the overall trends. And he'd already gathered a you know, whole lot of published literature, but 
he came down to us, spent a couple of days, and we were just sort of feeding him data and information, like literally, you know, on one computer coming up with some results and printing them out and, or, you know, calling them out to him. And he's there pumping them into, you know, his computer. And I think that study ended up with, was it 197 studies or 97? It certainly had the 97 in it. It was one of the two. And, you know, that was the first meta-analysis of, you know, the research. So by then the research had grown enough that you can actually sort of pull it together into, you know, one larger study. But when we put in length of program, length of program had a pretty small, it was a positive relationship with outcomes, but it had a pretty small relationship and not much to get all that excited about. And then subsequently, what this, you know, there's green exercise research coming out now, and they've tried to look for the same thing, you know, is more better. And same sort of thing, like, yeah, probably, but the re- really the take-home message is even a brief, small dosage of green exercise is you get a fair bit of bang for your buck from, from that. And so I actually think the narrative should be the opposite of, well, I mean, don't get me wrong, long expeditions are great, but one of the messages that needs to go out is just go outside for five minutes, just go outside at lunchtime and take a 15-minute walk around the park because you'll get a, a shot, you know, you get a, a really positive mental health kind of shot from that that can flow through, you know, over time. So, and and because we're only going to have a very small number of, let's face it, largely quite privileged people going on fairly resource-intensive expeditions, then that's not any real solution to <laughs> anything on a, on a large exactly. scale. Whereas, you know, planting some more trees in the local neighbourhood and, you know, so that there's a green sort of walkway that many people can access, that's, you know, that's going to service so, uh, so many more people. Yeah, I think that this is a big, a big thing. I, I can imagine a lot of people are realizing, especially nowadays during these COVID kind of lockdown quarantine times where you have such a limited opportunity to, you know, go on long journeys or anything like that right now, especially because maybe that takes some transportation that you don't want to take right now, or maybe, you know, you just live in a highly urbanized area and you just can't get to these places. Is that, you know, just even, you know, I, for example, I have a, a roof here where you can go out on the roof, even just going out there for five minutes to get some fresh air between doing some work. And you're just like, why haven't I been out here like five hours ago already? You know, <laughs> why Or you know, people, people will like sit in bed during the day and be, oh, it's, it's kind of, it's a little stormy outside. I, I don't, I don't know if I feel like going out right now. And then immediately you go outside and you're like, oh, it's actually not so bad out here. Right now. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. It's feels much more refreshing to get that and, and, and massively improved. And I mean, it, you know, that's is just another thing that originally spurred my interest to just get into the outdoor studies in general. Because it's just like, what is that feeling? And of course, we're all exploring it in different ways. You're exploring it from this very like data-driven psychology aspect perspective. And uh, there's, there's just many ways you can uh, pr- pursue that. It made me think about too, when you're talking about this study of looking out the window I saw you were doing something about like cat pictures and how this affects your 
emotion and i was <laughs> and it, but and and and, and, I, and I was looking at that for a few minutes, and I thought, but this to me reminds me of that idea of yeah. If you look at pictures of nature and stuff like that, it also can affect your emotions. Did you see any like connections between like cat pictures and I mean, well, essentially, a cat picture is kind of a nature picture if you're looking mm-hmm. at it. Something that is, is kind of what we're is that is that you know because okay, I think what I'm trying to get at here is that. When I, when, I, when I think about the going back to this idea of the intra-indigenous consciousness, when, and, I, and I'm glad that you also clarified where that originally comes from, this Graham Ellis, right? Because that, that, that sets, the, sets the score there. But, you know, when to me, it seems like with this intra-indigenous consciousness idea, we have this body, we have this way of moving, we have this machine, and it's supposed, it's engineered to do certain things. It's engineered to bend down and pick up berries and throw rocks and, you know, pull uh, branches down from trees and pick up babies and whatever. Human, human bipedal kind of things. But nowadays, to me, it seems like we've, you know, become drastically disconnected. You know, we sit in cars, we sit at desks, we sit at all these things. And I'm just wondering, you know, have you have you seen any evidence of like this is kind of like a misdirected kind of energy we have this energy inside of us as humans as these like human animals to express ourselves through our like you know kind of indigenous movements our movements that are indigenous to our bodies and i just saw kind of like a parallel with that with maybe like the cat pictures and the nature pictures like you know we, we should be outside looking at nature and nature really gives us the endorphins or the, maybe the, the happy juice that we need, but we can also derive that through other avenues, you know, mm-hmm. does that res- resonate with any idea? Cause that's kind of what I got from that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it, that's just my interpretation. I, I'm laughing because it, it's always fascinating to me. You, you've like throw something on the internet and, you know, it just sort of disappears and then occasionally kind of, it's a bit like sending out, you know, a signal to find out if there's life in the universe and occasionally <laughs> you know, some of it actually bounces back and it, it's always fascinated me to see what, what bounces back and when I first put up the Wilderdom site, I used to, because you can get your data analytics and stuff like that, so you can look and see what 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 are people hitting on. And, you know, mm-hmm. what I learned was that stuff that I'm passionate about is actually not what, you know, most people were looking for, <laughs> which uh, it's a rude shock when you find that, right, because, you know, all of our passions are not not more interesting to other people, they're more interesting to us. And what I learned from sort of looking at that is that what what people were hitting was group activities and group games and team building Mm -hmm. exercises because, you know, for every one outdoor, you know, researcher or instructor out there, there was, there's a hundred people or a thousand people going, damn, I've got to run, (laughs) I've got to run an activity at my next conference or something, or, you know, I've got to do a bit of building, team building with my, you know, with my group. What's a quick activity I can do? Mm -hmm. And it was not actually something that I ever really knew about that much because, you know, when you've got a sort of, I guess, a rich environment and an expedition-based program, you don't necessarily need or to do a huge amount of group activities. But, one of the things I, know, I sort of learned about in the States was this whole kind of project adventure thing, which, mm. you know, is a good example of a spin-off from Outward Bound that sort of became its own thing and went in its own direction. Mm. But the narrative yeah, is kind of... Adventure-based you know, counselling kind of stuff. Yeah. But they all... I mean, Carl Ronke, who I might say just passed away only in the last month or so, who was, you know, had been an Outward Bound instructor, 
when he had the same sort of idea, like, you know, not everybody's going to do this. So how can more people get access to this experiential challenge kind of stuff? And mm-hmm. so he said, and he also hated sport, absolutely loathed it. So when he went back into high schools and went into the PE curriculum, the very last thing he wanted to do was anything like any kind of conventional sport. And he was a really brilliant, creative kind of mind. And so for him, a basketball was not a basketball. It was it was like what creative and interesting and fun and crazy thing can we do with a basketball that is not basketball? So really that's where like low ropes activities and sort of low initiatives became, you know, a thing. And because, you know, maybe the activities weren't quite as powerful, that's where sort of some of the facilitation and framing of activities and metaphorical kind of, you know, this isn't just a few, you know, bits of wood on the ground. There's alligators and there's, you know, crazy things that you're trying mm. to step through and, you know, all mm-hmm. of, sort of this almost all, almost sort of storytelling, you know, type scenario stuff. And that kind of opened my eyes a bit because – and other things to sort of, I guess, the role of facilitation and, you know, there was th- – there's a – you know, there's this great paper still from the uh, must have been the Colorado Outward Bound School on, you know, Thomas James. Can the mountains speak for themselves? And it c- kind of talks about this philosophical debate in the Outward Bound schools at the time, because the early programs were, you know, you just went out there, you had a hard, tough adventure, and you know that was sort of it. And then there was a newer school coming in going, well, that's not enough or we can do better than that. The mountains don't just speak for themselves. We need to sort of help people to process and think about this experience. And there's there's good arguments on both sides. And when I went over to interview for the, a job at Uni of New Hampshire with, with Mike Gass oh, yeah. and oh, they yeah. said, you know, come over and, you know, you need to teach a, a class or whatever – because I'd never done any – I'd, I'd taught some psychology at uni, but I hadn't taught outdoor education at uni. And that was actually the paper I picked up. And I thought, you know, this is a really good philosophical debate. And, you know, the exercise that we did that worked well and I sort of used it since was was essentially – I can't remember in detail, but it was basically, you know, embrace this debate and come up with a model that – I guess, finds a solution to the problem. Like, you know, if we don't want it to be purely mountains speak for themselves, but we don't want to be overly humanly interventionist, how do you create a model that kind of embraces the best of both worlds? And, you know, in small groups, they went off at having sort of read the paper and debated this and then come back and presented some some new models that could go beyond that kind of dichotomy. I see in your work, you, you talk a lot about motivation, uh, do, you, do you see any connections between like what our bodies are engineered to do and what our bodies are actually doing and like how maybe that results in less sustainable choices? For me, part of what you're saying relates back to this debate around, you know, can the mountains speak, speak for themselves or do we have to sort of, you know, can we just sit in a mm-hmm. room and have deep and meaningful conversation with somebody else? And th- there's no doubt in my mind that, the lack of physicality is absolutely an issue in mm-hmm. first world, you know, privileged societies and yeah. for an increasing proportion of the of the population. I mean, ironically, it's the opposite for a bunch of people. It's life is physically so 
bloody tough that mm-hmm. there is just not enough nutrition and you know so and look I was young and sort of naive and a bit you know I would say what I thought and when I was in the US I and, and Australia is is like I just sort of saw US as 10 20 years ahead of Australia in good and bad ways and one of those was obesity and mm. the quality of the food and the you know everything was made of corn syrup and it was you know it was a, it was a culture shock and I made the mistake of going to the US thinking oh you know another english speaking country you know should be pretty similar and what I learned quickly was that that was I should have made the opposite assumption that I'm going into a completely different culture on so many different levels and food is just sort of one of those and I remember thinking saying to I think my boss and that you know it was a throwaway line but you know what we needed was a pipeline from the US to Africa which you could send some fat down because you know send (laughs) energy down because there was an excess (laughs) sitting on people in the US and there's an, you know, and it's an awful stereotype and maybe even racist, I don't know, but, you know, there was people starving in Ethiopia and I just go, you look at it and you go, that doesn't make sense. Like, that's obviously not right. So, you know, we've got kind of both problems. You've, you know, you've got the developing world that need better roofs over their houses and electricity and, you know, that sort of stuff. And then we've got the privileged kind of world with excess and, you know, heavily underutilised bodies. And it's difficult to deal with mental health and the mental health epidemic or crisis or whatever you call it. But the stats, you know, there's various reasons why. Is it just being reported more or people actually, you know, experiencing more depression, anxiety, stress? You know, it's like, how how can it be that we can have so many resources and yet according to at least mainstream data, be psychologically less healthy. And to try and think that we can become optimally psychologically healthy without also doing the, you know, physical component, I think is a little a little naive. Yeah. Well I think in your in your analogy of the the pipeline. Yeah, w- w- what's up with the distribution of resources? The world does have enough to provide for everybody. It's just being kind of stored in some places, tossed out in other places, and then, you know, not being sent or being sent away from other places. And I'm just wondering, like, do you see anything? Because you work so much with psychology and people's, like, nature connectedness. Do you see anything through your studies that lead like evidence between like why people continue to participate in unsustainable activities that would not really make any sense or like coincide with survival. Like we're working in many ways with like climate change and a lot of just our daily activities that are creating climate change. We're working, we're really working against in many ways our own survival, but at the same time, our whole, isn't our whole goal to survive? And what's the disconnect there? Yes, yeah, we're sort of shitting on our own island. <laughs> yeah, look, I, look, I do think about you know this sort of whole climate change discussion, issue, mm-hmm. problem, challenge, phenomena, and look, I think. Like I think, for example, outdoor education definitely needs to evolve. I think in many ways it was a 20th century thing mm. and it's been commercialised and commodified and 
sort of sausage factoried and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. what doesn't make sense to me is I, I guess maybe we're at this sort of hopefully at this transition point where the future needs to be people who have learnt how to live sustainably. I mean, that's that's obvious. So if that's the case, surely the education pathway would in, be a curriculum of sustainable living skills. And that can be completely across the curriculum. Like, But that, that can be the overarching goal. And, I mean, it's pretty much, I don't know whether it's happening, but, you know, like the sustainable development goals seem to me like the obvious educational curriculum because if that's sort of what we agree on as, you know, how we need to move forward, then presumably throw away the school curriculum, put in the sustainable development goals and you, you're you trying to exit students who are fully capable of, you know, contributing in some way, shape or form to those sustainable development goals and then build all your maths and, you know, English and science and whatever around around that curriculum. So. Like I don't like I I think a good policy decision could be you know like in Australia to offer you know grants for farmers who need to improve their property to come and have school kids come onto their property and start to build sustainable living communities rather than you know trek them through the bush and things like that with backpacks which you know like I don't know a zero carbon outdoor education program now probably somebody has made one out there. Uh, and I'd love to sort of see it. I'd love to see the analysis that says this is a genuinely zero carbon program. So I would suggest that all of what we sort of admire on the surface about these outdoor programs are in and of themselves not, you know, contributing to the very problem that we're sort of saying that we need to find find a way through and around. So if we sort of said, look, here's some grants for a zero carbon educational program, if you can show us that you're carbon positive in your program, then here's some money, run it. And I don't think it would be that hard. I mean, one of the most impressive outward outdoor education schools or stories that in Australia was started by a guy named Ian Stapleton. And all he did was go and find a cheap, as far as I know, a cheap bit of property with nothing on it, probably old farmland. There was no road access. And he said, right, we're open. And <laughs> from day one, students had to, you know, go across a, a zip line, cross their property, carry all their food, all their gear over to the other side. And then they were on the other side and stuck on the other side. And the first groups just started making stuff and building stuff for the following groups to come through. And they would go and do little hikes and things like that and other activities. And over time, you know, they, they built a, you know, a simple kind of school and facilities. Uh, and it still runs today. but. I just think it's such a brilliant kind of concept and story that you can start with nothing. And one of my favourite quotes is from Ian Stapleton and he said something like, if you can't do outdoor education with a backpack and a bit of water, then you can't do outdoor education. You know, this idea that you've got to have you know, kayaks and high ropes courses and blah, 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 it's really unnecessary if the process is is there. Yeah, I, I, I remember this uh, famous story, well, famous to me from one of my professors who was from Australia, but I, I can't remember which one now. And they told me, yeah, they w- had these programs going on. They lived by the coast and they had these you know, outdoor programs going on where every year they would 
drive all the way out to six hours out to some river to go kayaking. And then eventually they said, but then we realized we can just go surfing right here by the coast. It's not a traditional, you know, hype, stereotypical, you know, outdoor education activity to go surfing, but it's, it's much more, you know, place, place oriented and obviously much more carbon neutral and, and natural to the area. And I really, I, I really think this is what we need. We need people doing more low key activities. I mean, if we can't, if we can't promote that in outdoor education or environmental education, all this kind of stuff, and also activities where you're reflecting, if you're doing organized activities where you're integrating, you know, as teachers or facilitators, kind of a reflection process. You know, I've, I, I live, used to live up here at like the ski, ski downhill ski area here in in Oslo. And, you know, year after year after year, I just see tons of kids, you know, going down. And I mean, they're having fun. It's a good thing being joyful out in nature. But I'm just thinking, you know, there's no real reflective part here. It's more just like pay the money, ride the rail, got the equipment, got the flashy clothes. And I'm just like, where is the, you know, this nature is less and less snow every year. And we're not talking about why there's less and less snow every year, why we can't have ski class right now. because there's, it didn't snow this year in Norway, you know, which is we had no snow last year mm-hmm. here. So, yeah, but I think this is, again, this is kind of just like, I think a lot of people are concerned. People are beating their heads against the wall about this kind of, you know, lack black hole in the education system. Yeah. When, like when the climate change thing first started, I don't know, becoming, you know, more, mainstream and and i actually still feel this way and it's not probably well popular view but i I was kind of like bring it on because whether it was true or not or whatever because it was obvious to me that we weren't living sustainably and whether that's you know whether it's going to be the heat or changing climate that is the driver or just running like at the time it seemed to me we're just going to run out of resources so Mm. better than if we if it starts hurting earlier the sooner and harder it hurts, to me, the better the long-term outcomes are because if it is a slow thing and, you know, it, it has been slow, right, but it's sort of ticking up, you get this sort of frog in the pot, you know, boiling and not realising that it's boiling and until it's too late. So this, <laughs> I guess I sort of have this dual attitude, which is partly like bring it on because the more we hurt now the better, you know, the more likely we are to react and we and it's going to need significant force. And you've even seen what COVID's done. I mean, I've had the best year of my life, you know, thanks to COVID. Now, again, it, I don't wish it on, you know, anyone. And I know it's, you know, I've, I've, again, I'm in a privileged position. I can work from home and blah, blah, blah. But this, to me, there's been so many silver linings. And you mentioned sort of exploring your local place. It's like, really, do people... You know, what is it on the other side of the world that I really, really need to, you know, jump on a plane and fly over and see that when I probably, you know, we've had people locked down into five kilometre radiuses in in Melbourne and I'll be fascinated to see, but I bet they have got to know their local environment way better than they ever would have because they've been asked to, you know, explore a five kilometre radius in, in their lives. Yeah, this local stuff is, I think, critical and it's the Latrobe University is the sort of runs the largest outdoor education course, uh, teaching course in Australia. In It's in Victoria near Melbourne. 
And they were the ones who, once I sort of left the outward bound thing, and the outward bound thing is, in fact, one one student said to me one time, pulled me aside, really concerned, I've got to chat to you in the first few days of the program. And I said, yeah, okay, what is it? He's, and he sort of, you know, in a hushed voice said, you've been caught up in a cult. He said, you've, you've got this community that lives apart from everyone else. You've got this charismatic leader that you all, you know, think is wonderful. And he said, you've got to get out. You know, and um, I was like, oh, yeah, that's not true, blah, blah, blah. But it, it really played on my mind because I thought he does actually have a point, you know, and it did make me think. And when I eventually sort of left Outward Bound and got on the outside and looked back in, I could sort of see it through that lens. And I forgot where I was going with this. but uh, So, he was, uh, uh, he was uh, uh, saying that Outward Bound is the cult? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, oh, I know, the Latrobe thing. So, when I sort of came out, what I found was, you know, the Latrobe academics at the time had a critique that I had never seen of of Outward Bound, of being – now, at the time, they probably weren't using the words colonial, but, you know, it's this sort of macho, let's, you know, put on the backpacks, let's Mm. conquer nature. And, you know, in all that time at Outward Bound, I really never learnt the name of a plant. I never learnt the name of a star that I looked at. I never learnt any Indigenous history of the landscape that I walked through. And a bit like this international travel, we just sort of dropped into these – you know, little mini oases around the mm. country had a one or two day kind of tour and a bunch of other strangers arrived. And as a group of strangers, we kind of, you know, rambled through through the bush and hopefully you got something out of it. But we really learned nothing about the environment. And the Latrobe Uni point was that maybe going slower and maybe going more local and maybe going to that same place more than once in different seasons and getting to know it and build a relationship with it, that might be more important. And they had a much stronger environmental kind of education perspective. And mm-hmm. uh, it would, that it, for them, it was more about the relationship with nature and getting to know a place and getting sort of out of our sort of human consciousness into, you know, and they weren't calling it Indigenous, but they were probably the first ones who started saying, well, yeah, let's get a bit of information from Indigenous elders and have them walk with us and, you know, learn about the landscape and the history history of it and, and things like that. And so it's a little bit like this, can the mountains speak for themselves versus, you know, facilitation mm-hmm. dilemma or debate is do you go with this sort of slow slower place-based multiple visit type approach or this you know grand adventure type approach yeah i guess this is nowadays i guess this is kind of morphed into yeah place-based learning low impact activities have you ever come across this attraction to charismatic megafauna where you know in the in the animal rights circles you know we're really concerned about Shamu, we're really concerned about the blue whale or the big black bear or whatever. And I, I see that a lot in outdoor activities too, or just like physical activity. And it maybe it's kind of the opposite of green exercise too, is this charismatic mega activities where, oh, we got to jump out of the plane and then and ski down the side of the tallest mountain or make it up to Everest. But I find, at least in just my own anecdotal kind of like 
you know, experience on tours with, you know, groups is that, you know, the, this, it seems to me there's like a tendency for a lot of people that really want this excitement and this adrenaline and all this kind of stuff. It's very difficult sometimes, especially in group scenarios, to slow down and kind of stick together in that kind of community. So you have to be kind of on top and front, this kind of stuff. And did you ever come across anything or have you just ever thought about why people are attracted to these really charismatic mega activities as opposed to just like the simple kind of place-based local activities? Absolutely agree with you. Yeah, I think there's, again, lots of answers to, to that. But I think part of it is this sort of masculinity, mm-hmm. this Western masculinity mm-hmm. thing and uh, and this sort of colonial, you know, uh, conquering type type approach that you know is historically embedded in outdoor education and so I think when you sort of look at the ecological view and the feminist view and the eco-feminist sort of thing or you know the indigenous kind of approach is you know much slower and deeper but yeah, that's, that's kind of what yeah, I got So it's, it's, it's kind of a cultural thing, I guess, because that has become a culture or at least a subculture. And because you do have the outdoor activity, recreation, you know, field, which, you know, people like sort of high adrenaline type activities. And even if you don't like the physicality of it, you might want to go on a, you know, a gondola or a Ferris wheel or, you know, like people like to be taken to that edge and experience that that sort of emotion emotionality that comes with being on the edge. But, yeah, it's a somewhat sort of misguided narrative, I think, now. It's, you know, it's not to me it's not a 21st century program model to you – know, like it'll always be there and there's always going to be camps for thrills and spills and water slides and things like that. But um, – mm. The risk is that that, I guess, you know, limits. I, I mean, I don't really think it is. There's lots of people out on the edge doing other interesting things, but it's probably what the general public thinks of as, you know, as your typical out, outdoor program. Rec- recreation. I love this word, especially when you break it up. I just like playing around for it. It's recreation, recreation. I don't know if there's any connection, but have you seen any thing about in your in your time studying in this field? Have you seen anything that we recreate through recreation? You know, I mentioned going to like you know the New York Outward Bound School, and then although I never went there, the other Outward Bound School that popped up that just had a really different story was the Czech Republic mm-hmm. school. So. Before they were republic and they were, you know, occupied by the communists, they had this, you know, you, you couldn't do things in obvious ways. You had to do things in less obvious ways. So they, they, they had a program there which was a drama-based program. And, but it was a personal development program through, through dramatic activity. And then when the Iron Curtain kind of came up and they became a republic, this sort of group looked around and sort of said, oh, well, who are we? You know, like uh, who else out there is like us and who do we belong to? And they ended up adopting Outward Bound. And so they said, well, yeah, that's the closest to what we do because we challenge people. We want them to grow and develop. and, And so that's where we belong. 
we don't really use the outdoors, but that's not the point. Like in in that sort of outward bound model, the outdoors actually doesn't really belong. It just happens to be a conducive environment to achieving what you know they set out to do. And so this Andy Martin from New Zealand wrote his thesis on the dramaturgy program at the Czech school. And again, it was I found it fascinating. And they, they had some really interesting activities like wake people up at 3 a.m. and say, grab your sleeping bag and, you know, come to this place. And now get into your sleeping bag, pull it down over your head, and they then would take took them through this sort of dramatic exercise that says, and they say, you are in the womb and you are about to, you know, it's almost time for your birth, but we'll tell you a little bit about your mum and dad and the world you're about to come into, but you are about to get born. So get ready to, you know, be born. And this would play out over hours. And so people would then, you know, emerge from their sleeping bags and be born. And, you know, if you look at stuff like the rebirthing program, like they take people back through an experiential, you know, process to re, re-experience their birth on the assumption or the basis that, you know, that you could resolve some issues by, by kind of doing that. And then gradually they take people through, you know, like bring them around little bottles and feed them and here's your milk and, you know, you can't move, roll around on the ground and, you know, hey, you know, you've worked out that you can start crawling, start crawling around and, you know, they all crawl around and sort of bump into each other. And anyway, this whole process goes on that, you know, eventually they can walk and, you know, they say, okay, here's the school, you've got to come over and, you know, sit down here and, you know, do your lessons. And and then different things start happening to different individuals like, um, oh, you know, sorry, you got sick, you know, off you go to the hospital over there and, you know, that person's got to go over there. So different things start happening. And basically, it's a it's sort of a life cycle thing. So they take people right through sort of a lifetime in the space of two or three hours and they get to, you know, death and, and things like that. They end up doing different jobs and things. And because it's a drama-based program, they sort of free up people's, you know, if, you know, encourage them, yeah, like just, yeah, be free. Like, you know, don't be constrained. Just the place apart. You can experiment. You can you can be different, which is a message we used to try and give it outward bound. Like, you know, if it doesn't work being this way over this month, that's fine. Go back and be who you were, but you may as well experiment with being someone else while, you know, while you're here. So when you sort of say recreate, you know, that's probably not what somebody would call recreation, but there is so much potential for... I guess, you know, doing things that are different from just what people do every day and in that way learning something about ourselves. And in some ways that's all this outdoor stuff is. And But, you know, from the, from the sort of humanistic psychology movement in the 1960s, you've got lots of experiments with how to be different ways, whether it's psychedelic drugs or, you know, they really got into the group, you know, the group encounter, group therapy programs. Let's just have marathon sessions and sit here together in a group for, you know, 24 hours, 36 hours, and we're just going to talk until we get over all our barriers and preconceptions and we'll go through frustration and anger and all of that. And then when we've done all of that, you know, then maybe our truer selves, actually sort of here for each other and so you know there's so much potential for doing that whether it's in the outdoors or not in the outdoors to sort of you know help people move I guess up through some you know levels of consciousness or escape from just some of those sort of lower level patterns of thinking that you know are so easy to get trapped into. 
Yeah, I'm just kind of like imagining something like, for example, going back with these like super activities, you know, high adrenaline super activities. I always kind of wondered, and maybe this is something I need to try to go research. Is that a reaction to something that our body isn't doing or maybe our psychology is not participating in because of the more like sedentary lifestyles Mm -hmm. that we're living in like the, you know, Western kind of privileged world these days? Yeah, is it kind of compensatory in in some way for, I mean, exactly. if if you're living in a sustainable kind of indigenous way, you don't need any of this because daily life just provides for, you know, the hunting Mm -hmm. is, you know, some sort of peak and, you know, just the daily physicality of gathering enough food and, you know, maintaining your lifestyle is more than sufficient to be an incredibly fit, an active, you know, person. So, you know, that, that uh, at least that hypothesis kind of, you know, makes sense to me. But, you know, essentially we're chasing a psychological experience and that's why also, you know, the temptation to go to drugs or, you know, other things that are going to give you what, you know, and I, I like, yeah, I teach sort of you know, motivation and emotion. And we, you know, we do a bit of neuropsych and in that, that at the end of the day, you're probably, you know, trying to release some dopamine into your, you know, pleasure center in your limbic system that makes you feel good. And that's, that's the feel good thing. If you, if you put a rat in a cage and you put a probe into its nucleus acumbens, then it will sit there all day pushing this button and it won't even touch food and it'll starve to death because it's having such a good time psychologically and that's really what addiction is is sort of having a developing a pattern of behavior which is like the rat pushing the lever to get this you know and often people will just say well it's an adrenaline release and it's not just dopamine it's you know there's a bit of a cocktail there but essentially it's a feel-good like experience and we tend to then repeat you know if we've had one of them we tend to repeat the activity or seek out something similar to get a a similar experience but in that sense you know you can be an adrenaline sort of junkie or something and it's not that different from being addicted to gambling or being addicted to you know a hard drug or something yeah so uh, yeah i'm really glad you brought up the 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 motivation aspect something inside of us is motivating us and it's these you know psychological experiences or maybe some experience that we had or something we're chasing after or something you know we're trying to sort out but have you done any investigation or any work for things like mental i don't know if disorders the right word but for things like add and other kinds of disorders that are prevalent today in society and how that connects with like motivation Sometimes for me, it almost seems like you have the problem of almost too much motivation. I mean, I guess I put my hand up to sort of, you know, teach in this area when the opportunity came up, probably because, you know, maybe what I'd love to teach would be, if I'm teaching psychology, might be positive psychology or environmental Mm. psychology or Mm -hmm. um, something like that. And this is probably the closest and we have a fairly standardized curriculum. So, you, you know, you take what you can get and unpacking the notion of motivation, which is thrown around you know, and people just sort of mostly think, well, you're either motivated or you're not. That's, you know, or in this case, maybe you could be, you know, overly motivated, underly motivated, or, you know, somehow optimally motivated. But the way we sort of talk about motivation is really to say, well, every human behavior, whether it's unconscious or conscious, is driven by something. Like it's a, it's either a conscious choice or an unconscious choice. You've got an infinite number of 
possible behaviours. So how is it and why is it that you choose that particular behaviour? And I guess that's the sort of challenge for psychological science and theory behind motivation is to try and work out what the causes, you know, the reasons for people's behaviour. So, yeah, like a manic state is, you know, or bipolar in, you know, in the manic state is an example of being, you know, dysfunctionally motivated to the point where, you know, you might go spend all your money or, you know, take, you know, poorly calculated risks and things like that. And then, you know, one step back is sort of hypomania, which is, you know, kind of on that edge. Like people love the state, but it's sort of right on the cusp of being functional or non-functional. And I guess maybe what we what I find a lot of people dream about is somehow having access to that, but still <laughs> still having, <laughs> you know, their hands on the wheel so that they, it, it's directed and guided. Like of all the things we used to measure at Outward Bound in terms of life skill outcomes, the thing that the measure we would use that people always rated the lowest consistently was time management. And it's probably not a typical outcome that you would expect from outdoor programs, but it does reflect the sort of old adventure will push you, you know, you'll have five days in one day, like, and we're just going to basically overload you, you guys, deep end you with the volume and amount of challenges that you need to do. And therefore, managing your time better was seen as something that people would could work on and, and get out of it. And so, but yeah, people rate that the lowest of all the life skills. And I've seen that with students too. When we, when we do stuff, people feel quite poor about their ability to sort of allocate their time and their energy in ways that sort of fit their goals. And procrastination is this huge thing like it's it's a bit like the sort of sleep epidemic that you know we're basically chronically sleep deprived people are also there's also this kind of epidemic of procrastination where people can't manage or don't seem to be able to manage their their motivation so to me that's all probably just part of personal development and you know a personal development kind of curriculum to be able to manage that sort of flow of energy speaking of time management i can see <laughs> the clock is ticking just to close this out here today in the last couple of minutes, I was reading your most recent writings that you wrote along with in collaboration with Dorothy Foley in this article about COVID-19 and the future of outdoor education. It was kind of an article that is accessible online and, and uh, it's written very transculturally. A lot of different people from around the world from the Journal of, I think, Outdoor and experiential education. But in the article, it said, you know, nothing changed and everything changed. And, you know, maybe now we need to take a hiatus to reevaluate the existential crossroads that we find ourselves at and perhaps suggesting more Indigenous learning experiences or more Indigenous with our bodies. Can you just say, like, you know, some closing thoughts about, you know, what that might look like or how people listening out there might be able to help to do that themselves or help others? What do you do to, on this hiatus? Yeah, look, I mean, I, look, I absolutely, I, I'm, a, I'm an optimist, and that's probably come through. That that's great. You know, a crisis is a crisis is opportunity, really. Mm. And so it seems to me maybe we've got the opportunity for this perfect storm, which is, you know, escalating climate crisis. COVID's come along from my point of view just at the perfect time, and 
you know, yes, we want to solve COVID, but you know what? If we don't get a vaccine, we get another, you know, year or two of just slowing down and trying mm. to live more locally and live more sustainably. And if we can, you know, habits form over time. And so the longer we can actually live now, I know there's debates about out there about whether COVID has had positive or negative environmental consequences. And there's, you know, I don't, I don't want to sort of be naive to say that this is somehow the magic solution. And there's a lot of environmental scientists warning that that's, this isn't the fix, but it does give an opportunity to sit back and think, and, you know, how else were we going to get everybody to kind of slow down? Like it's, it's very hard to conceive if you had to, if you were God and you had to try and design something to kind of wake people up a bit, you probably couldn't have come up with a, better strategy in, in some ways and at least it's an opportunity to say well okay can we can we capture the moment capture the perfect storm and implement the some of the fundamental kind of changes that collectively need to happen in order to you know live more sustainably as we go forward definitely yeah i share a lot of the same thoughts it's kind of the the great break in a lot of ways i mean of course was considered not for everybody, but I mean, in general, the the globe is kind of taking a pause mm. in a lot of ways right now, and and I think you know one very interesting thing that we see too is the level. It's really showing who who can be patient and who who is impatient. You know, the level of patience because this kind of like you said, if we can catch the right the right gust of wind in this storm, it's going to require, I think patience because any kind of development psychological development's not going to you know paradigm shift in you know individuals or global humanity is not going to happen in a few days or even a few months it's going to take some time even even 2 years would be pretty amazing if we could make some really big paradigm shifts about how we're interacting with each other and interacting with the environment so but yeah it's an opportunity mm. definitely mm-hmm. definitely well fantastic james Thank you so much for speaking with me today and having this conversation. And I'm really excited to release this out to the world because I think many people out there might find this interesting. And I really hope uh, we can uh, get together and do this again sometime. <laughs> That'll be fun. And look, can I just say, absolutely love the initiative, the spark, the idea. You know, I'm a bit of a podcast fan and um, I have only listened to your trailer and then the first one. But in many ways, that was enough for me to just go, look, you've nailed something. You know, you're onto something. And so I think it's awesome. And yeah, thank you for, for doing it. Right, welcome back everyone thanks for listening and big thanks to james for taking the time to share his thoughts and bounce all these ideas around now i don't know about you but despite all the questions i had when embarking on this conversation i have even more now maybe not for james necessarily but for myself and for you and for humanity at large so let me know what you think i'm talking about questions that don't necessarily have a beginning or an end or a definite answer but as we discussed towards the end of the conversation there they might require a physical activity and that activity might actually be to slow down in whatever you might be doing slow down to relieve pressure adjust to the situation put at ease our energy slow down to reflect on our actions and keep moving in a more sustainable way 
These were the transnational perspectives this week, everybody. I'm your audio activity facilitator, Josh Bennett, signing off for today. Thanks for tuning in, and please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're at. Share it and enjoy it just like you do with your life now. Have a good one, everybody. Talk to you next time.